electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now on Fast, the semi-sell-off shares of NVIDIA and AMD dropping as the U.S. government starts restricting sales of some of their chips to China. We'll break down the next move for the sector and go inside the rising tensions with Beijing straight ahead. Plus, the not-so-friendly skies for investors. The major airlines grounded over the last three months, but could an end to the summer surge actually help boost the fortunes of the big carriers? And later, Octa's historically bad day, an Amazon Prime-like subscription service potentially coming to Apple next week. And we're all over the move in Lululemon after hours of big earnings beat. We'll hear from the CEO minutes from now. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money Live from the Nasdaq Market Site. On the desk tonight, Dan Nathan, Guy Dami, Tim Seymour, and Brian Kelly. And we start off with a major market turnaround. Stock staging a rally in the last few minutes of trading the Nasdaq 100, erasing a loss of more than 2% early in the day to close in the green. The S&P and Dow also snapping four-day losing streaks to eke out gains. The move's coming despite deep drops in some semi-stocks. NVIDIA shedding nearly 8% after the company said the U.S. is restricting sales of some of its chips in China. That stock is down more than 20% in the last week, shaving $100 billion off its market cap. AMD also down today, losing more than 15% in five days. So how are markets able to shrug off these concerns? Guy, earlier today you said this would be the day. Today would be the day the markets would turn around. Hear the sirens out there? It's crazy. When you're live TV, you never know what's going to happen. Unfortunately, the folks watching or listening are not privy to our 1230 call, but we did have that conversation, so it doesn't really do anybody any good. But the point is, yesterday the VIX was unchanged on a miserable day. Today the VIX really didn't get going. It felt as if if the market was going to turn, it would be yesterday. It didn't happen or today, which is a healthy sign. And if you think about it in terms of the levels, where we traded down to effectively a 50% retracement of the recent (laughs) high north of 4,300, the June 16th low, it all makes sense. But it does not get us out of the woods by any stretch of the imagination. There are a lot of reasons to stay lower in today's session. Well, when Guy said that, I kind of came back at him pretty hard, I think, in the call. I just said, listen, with what's going on in semis right now, at that point, NVIDIA was down 11% on the day. Stocks like MongoDB were down 25% Okta. And so just the theme that was going on with some of these software names and then just the wholesale selling that we're seeing in semis, I didn't think it was going to happen. I did say to you, the only way it can happen is if Apple gets on its horse, (laughs) which Apple, you know, had sold off from 175 to 155 in the last two weeks. So maybe that was getting a little long in the tooth. And that's really what drove it. I mean, if you think of some of the strength that we saw in the market, it was utilities were acting okay. Banks yeah. were showing good relative strength. There were um, consumer staples were acting okay. It just didn't feel like a great rally, though, Guy. It just got really yeah. pressed lower. It felt really defensive. Yeah. I mean, utilities, right, off of highs, basically. Utilities are very expensive. Healthcare did well today, BK. I mean, I don't know. I, I feel like you would be the one to come and say, you know what, this rally didn't look good at all. Oh, I mean, certainly would not read too much into a half a day rally. I mean, you know, we've got so many things going on. A half a day rally right before we have a jobs number tomorrow. (laughs) It could just be simply that people didn't want to be as short as they were 
over the last couple of days, so they decided to cover into into tomorrow. That sounds like a, as reasonable as explanation as anything else. So I don't think there's any signal or any information based on today's action. You got to look at the bigger picture, which still to me does not look all that constructive. Yeah, I mean the China lockdowns, Tim. It's interesting we were able to just shrug that off. That that really underscores this notion that we're just a lockdown away from supply chain disruptions. And that is a part of the equation that nobody controls, especially the Fed. Yeah, and if anything, we, ha- we had ISM numbers that also g- gave some sense that the global supply chains are softening. We, there was actually a lot of good data today. And in fact, you can make an argument that after those ISM numbers that were better than expected, markets actually went down where good news was bad news. And I think that mm-hmm. sets you up. Brian refers to a payroll number tomorrow. Uh, unfortunately, I, I, I think that's uh, where the risk is to the market, that it was great to rally 2% or 2.25% on semiconductors off the intraday lows. It was great for the S&P to put in 120 basis point off the lows. But I I do think it's the labor market that everyone needs to be focused on. So uh, we had some data out today. It does tell a story uh, essentially of slightly softening demand, although better than expected. And prices paid components of these indices were much better. Um, I think the I think that, you know, it feels just like noise around China right now. I think when you look at the markets this morning, I think the pain was really for the semiconductor space was more around. What does this mean for NVIDIA? What does this mean for actually the export? What does it mean for a ramp of a new product uh, and expectations and some some major royalties uh, attached to China. And I think that hurts the entire sector. Uh, the real story, though, today was that the bond market decided to, to actually listen to the Fed speech on Friday. And we actually really started to see the bond market sell off. And we started pushing up to 330 on 10 years and 255, 256 uh, on that two year continues to go higher. European yields continue to go higher. So again, I, I think if anything, we were way oversold. We had RSIs, nine day RSIs and things like NVIDIA uh, that were at 18. So levels that were way oversold, we were due for a bounce. We were just talking yesterday to Nancy Davis of Quadratic Capital about the volatility in in fixed income guy. And here we had it. I mean, the moves in yields today were extraordinary. 17 basis point move in 10 year yields is ridiculous. Having seen it go from three and a half percent in June back almost to two and a half percent, Back to th- is that a healthy bond market to you? That's a rhetorical question. As you know, there's a nature in rhetorical. It's nuts. The bond market's broken. But I will tell you, TLT around this 109 level, that's the low we made back in the fall of 2018. This is where it has to hold because if the bond market breaks, in other words, TLT gets whacked here and yields start going significantly higher than we are now, as I've said a number of times, I don't know who Katie is, but she better bar that door because it's going to get really ugly really quickly. Yeah, and going back to the, the quality or what you want to kind of interpret from the rally this afternoon here, um, again, you know, you just talked about that bond market volatility, 10-year going where it's not been in a very long time. The two-year just broke out above um, 3.5%. Think of the U.S. dollar index. It's at 20-plus year highs. And then I'm going to throw this one in there. And if you're thinking about what it means as far as global growth or it, it just the health of of the economy. Look at crude oil here. It's back to those November 2021 highs. Okay, so it's at a really key technical level here. And so if crude is going down, dollars going up, they're kind of counteracting a little bit some of the things. But I don't I just don't think any of it speaks well for current equity valuations, if you will. You'd say that, yeah, it's great that crude's coming in. The dollar breaking out the way it's doing is not great for U.S. multinationals, yeah. um, ones that have actually felt the heat of a higher dollar. But the dollar is a lot higher 
than a lot of these companies had reported, or not a lot higher, but it is higher mm-hmm. than when they reported Q2 earnings. And, and specific moves within the currency market, I know BK have caught your eye. Yen at a fresh 24-year low, that feels like a BK kind of trade yep. to me. <laughs> that is a BK trade. It's uh, one of BK's bigger trades at this point in time. But I mean, it's, it's just all about the policy differential, right? And mm-hmm. what we saw in the bond market today, I think is the most important. Because to me, it looked as if the bond market was responding to the economic news. We had jobless claims that said, hey, wait a second, maybe the labor market isn't cooling off at all and it's still fairly tight. We had unit labor costs that were up 10%. We have never had inflation cooling off when you have unit labor costs like that. And what is unit labor costs? It means companies are paying more for employees and they're getting less productivity. That's a horrible combination for anybody with a uh, profit margin to try to get to, right? So those are some of the things that the bond market is saying, hey, wait a second, I would not discount this inflation peaked. I wouldn't buy into that at all. I think the bond market is telling you yields are going higher. Inflation has not peaked, and you'll likely see, you know, let's call it two years above 5% in the next, I don't know, six months or so. And that, again, is going to make sure, make the dollar go much higher. Euro's going lower. Great, great British pound is going lower. You name it, every currency in the world is going lower against the U.S. dollar. That's not great for multinationals, as Dan mentioned. So, again, to say we had a half a day rally, fantastic. But none of the big picture kind of baseline behind all of this has changed. In fact, it's probably gotten worse. The sirens started going off, BK. The two-year is headed to 5% in a matter of six months. Sure, why not? I mean, think about it. Core PCE is at roughly 45 to 5%, right? So if we have unit labor costs, if people are still buying things, and we saw that in the ISM numbers today, the economy really isn't weakening that much. So therefore, inflation should start picking back up a little bit. Yeah, oil's going to come off, and oil will help a little bit there. But the Saudis already told you they don't really want it much lower. So even if you get a, a lower price, what are the Saudis going to do? They're likely to reduce supply. So inflation, in my view, has not peaked. It is likely going to reaccelerate, and then that means that the and the Fed has already told you we mm-hmm. want positive real rates, right? So they have to get the rate of the bond market, let's call it the two-year, above the rate of inflation, and we're just not there yet. I guess in the context of interest rate volatility, which we were just talking about, and the fact that the two-year yield was at 0.15 percent, 0.13% one year ago, maybe a rise to the 5% isn't so crazy, Tim, but which side of the trade would you be on? Well, I know where, where BK's going, he's doing the math, he's doing the numbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, getting to real uh, positive interest rates, good luck. We're, it's not going to happen, and it's not going to happen at least, uh, I, I think, in the next few years. I, I do think that they're going to be aggressive. I think they're going to hold the line. I think they're they're certainly going to be pushing above four. But look at look at interest rate. Look at Fed fund futures. Uh, the fact that we got up to four percent uh, on the April into May futures over the last couple days and even we peaked this morning um, all the way from three thirty tells you that rates are moving higher. How much higher can they go? I don't know. Um, I, I think you know, looking at the 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 impact of what that means for the stock market and how stocks need to be priced lower when you add a higher discount rate on top of you added the headwinds that 
the consumer feels. We haven't begun to process uh, what home equity loans are doing, what revolving credit are, are doing. And, and, and again, to me right now, we've, we've just evolved through different phases of a market experience. We've gone through uh, really just the, the, the recession, pricing in some recession, pricing in uh, the beginning of some kind of liquidity risk. We haven't really priced in any in the form of credit risks. So I think this is something to be, to be, to be weighted out. But let's be clear again. Markets were way oversold. The moves that we had had really since the Fed Friday, but those that started even the middle part of the month as we started to pull back from very almost predictable levels, the 200-day on the S&P. Um, this is what markets will do, and this is what markets will do, especially when positioning in the professional community was almost anticipating this, the dealer community, which knocked down volatility going into that options expiration, and since then it's been on fire. It will get squeezed down. We will have a moment to see stocks rally more. All right, let's focus on China now. The country imposing another major lockdown, this time on the southwest city of Chengdu. It has a population of more than 21 million people. COVID restrictions also ramping up in other areas of the country, like Shenzhen. As COVID cases rise, could Beijing's latest lockdowns impact more than the global supply chain? For more on this and the U.S. ban of certain semis in China, let's bring in CNBC contributor DeWardrick McNeil. He is the managing director, senior policy analyst at Longview Global. DeWardrick, always great to have you with us. I want to ask you first about, about the chip news and the new requirements, licensing requirements imposed by Commerce. Um, it seems very specific, and yet it's, it seems almost, I don't want to say arbitrary. I mean, these are very specific chips. They're worried about it getting into the hands of the military. But could we see any sort of retaliation from China because of this? Does it, does it feel like the U.S. is somehow targeting China in, in some way? Uh, thanks for having me, Melissa. Look, I, I think uh, to be fair, we should step back and realize that these announcements are fairly consistent with the administration's broader semiconductor strategy, which they've been talking about for almost two years now, Melissa, and that involves two major pillars. We saw with the CHIPS Act, that's incentives for U.S. manufacturers to come back home and manufacture these high-end chips here. It's money for research and development so that the U.S. can maintain its cutting edge in these high-end chips. But the less focused on piece of that strategy, Melissa, is what I'm calling denial. And it is denying China the ability to buy the equipment needed to tool and fabricate these high-end chips, as well as the software to design these chips. And what we saw today is another pillar in that strategy, and that's export controls, Melissa, that will prevent them from buying finished chips that they can use for nefarious uh, purposes and military ends. And so this will continue to happen as the administration rolls out its semiconductor chip strategy. The investment stuff is longer term, but the Nile stuff is now. It's here, it's happening now. And to your point about retaliation, absolutely, China has proven that it is prepared to get into a tit for tat retaliation with the United States when it takes these sorts of actions. But we should be careful here not to expect a symmetrical response. It could be asymmetric because there's not much, quite frankly, that China can do at the moment to harm the U.S. in the semiconductor space. So we should be prepared for an asymmetrical response uh, when it comes, if it comes. The Warbrook, we started the conversation. BK was talking about currencies. We had a dollar-yen conversation. It was almost seven years ago to the day that China devalued their currency. And the aftermath in terms of all sort of risk assets was not good. Now, seven is sort of the magic line in the sand. And they're not trying to devalue now, but it's sort of moving that way organically. Can you speak to what potentially could happen if Yuan continues to devalue? 
Well, I'll tell you, one of the concerns that China has uh, been dealing with, and that's capital controls and flight as people look, investors look for uh, greater returns. Uh, this is always a challenge. Uh, it's certainly happening as the Fed increases rates and the PBOC decreases rates. So there's a lot of concern in China at the moment on how they regulate capital controls given some of these moves. So I think that's one place for us to focus as we look at, uh, at uh, yuan valuations. Dordrick, in terms of COVID lockdowns, in terms of retaliatory measures, should we expect a harder line stance from Beijing as, as they ramp into October 16th, the Congress meeting? Well, I think that with respect to zero COVID, I think we are seeing in the announcements out of Chengdu that they've learned some lessons from the Shanghai lockdown and they've put in place in this Chengdu lockdown in particular, some things that ease the pain on households. What's interesting though, is that there's been nothing said about the, uh, about the private sector manufacturing and, and factories. Most of what they are trying to do in Chengdu from the lessons learned in Shanghai is easing the pressure on households. This was obviously quite unpopular as we saw in Shanghai. But you raise an interesting question, Melissa, and that is what happens after the October 16th Party Congress and specifically what happens to zero COVID policy. I'm not sure if, if she is going to hit the brakes or hit the gas to get them through the rest of the year as we move into winter. But I think the whole world is waiting to see what will happen specifically to zero COVID after the Party Congress in October. All right, Der Wardrick, great to see you. Thank you. Thank you, Melissa. Der Wardrick McNeil. Yeah, yeah you know, 65% of the globe's chips are made in Taiwan, right? And 90% of advanced chips are made in Taiwan. So when you talk about retaliatory actions and, and the sort of potential for disruption, I mean, we think that the you know, Russian invasion of Ukraine caused like, you know, exasperated um, supply chain issues, but then also did what it did as far as energy is concerned. If that were to have the same impact as far as chips, if China were to do something with Taiwan, I mean, that's the real issue here. So all of these chip um, supply demand issues that we've been dealing with now for almost two and a half years will only get a lot worse and they're going to be a lot harder to, um, uh, you know, kind of untangle, I guess. And what happened this week? The governor of Arizona made a trip to Taiwan and the president of Taiwan talked about producing democracy chips. Arizona, by the way, is a state where, where Taiwanese are sent, pilots are sent to train on F-16, Tims. I mean, this, this whole thing, it feels like there's something brewing here. There's nothing imminent necessarily, but it does seem like it could potentially be a huge issue for supply chain. It, it, well, there's no question about it. it, and it's a tinderbox. And, and a lot of these, though, are, are shots across the bow. And, and if you think about it, it, it really is, uh, at some point, where is the risk to U.S. companies that, that are uh, succeeding and, and have real businesses in China uh, like an Apple. And, and, you know, remember all the way back to Huawei when we were essentially blocking them and, and, and really restricting them at every turn in this country and where we could even with our partners. And China plays the long game here. And, and I do think that, you know, some of the headlines here are, are intended to be just that. I think China is appeasing, as you said, into that Congress as much for a domestic constituency and a domestic audience as much as anything. And, and I agree with Dwardrick. I mean, the, the, the approach towards the semiconductor industry, whether it's 
it's onshoring, whether it's you know the capex that we've talked about that's in the, the hundreds of billions of dollars over the next five years is something that's very consistent with where we need to go and where strategic assets really need to be. So um, the headlines are scary. Um, and I think if you look at China, who, who added $146 billion in stimulus last week uh, to their economy, they have a lot more to do. And that's really where you have to focus. Coming up, big news out of Starbucks, the company picking out a new head honcho. What it could mean for the coffee chain next. Plus, we've got the latest auto sales data as car prices continue to surge. Some numbers we want to know before driving off the lot. we got the details when Fast Money returns. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com methane. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Fast Money and News Alert now on Starbucks, the company naming its new CEO. Let's get to Kate Rogers with the details. Kate. Hey, Melissa, as you said, Starbucks announcing just this afternoon that Loxman Narasimhan will be joining as incoming CEO on October 1st. He was most recently the CEO of Reckitt Benkiser, consumer hygiene, health and nutrition company, maker of Durex and Airwick. He was also global COO at PepsiCo and a senior partner at McKinsey & Company. Howard Schultz will be staying on as interim CEO until April 1st of 2023. will also serve as an advisor to Narasimhan through the calendar year of 2023 and remaining on the Starbucks board of directors. In a statement about the announcement, Schultz said, quote, he is uniquely positioned to shape this work and lead the company forward with his partner-centered approach and demonstrated track record of building capabilities and driving growth in both mature and emerging markets. This was not a name that analysts had been circulating. We'd heard Rich Allison of Domino's potentially, also Mary Dillon, now the CEO of Foot Locker, but formerly of Ulta, had both been floated. The company was focusing on an external hire for the role. It also recently saw the department of its EVP of North America's Rossanne Williams, and it also announced it would dissolve the COO role this year that was occupied by John Culver. Schultz has been focusing on the reinvention of the brand for the future, meeting customers where they really want to be, which is increasingly mobile, improving safety in stores and the partner experience. As the company faces down its ongoing union fight, I'm sure we'll hear much more at its investor day in uh, just over a week, Melissa. Back over to you. All right. Kate, thanks. Kate Rogers. BK, you like Starbucks? Not particularly. It doesn't seem like an environment that $8 coffees are going to do well. All right. Tim, you like the $8 <laughs> coffees and you're also in the stock. So what do you make of this new CEO pick? <laughs> well, the, the, the focus on both developed and developing markets is clearly a Starbucks strategy. The focus on unit growth is something we're going to hear more about. In fact, this September 13th, 
Investor Day, I think is very important because the, the last big one was mid-220 where we got this sense on a financial outlook that talked about some uh, both unit growth and compounded sales. If you look at where uh, they're coming in on pretty easy comps from 21, especially because of uh, the China weakness into 22, uh, you're looking at U.S. same-store sales comps of probably 11.5%, 12% and international of 85 or so or 9%. It, it really gets back to what you want to spend uh, and pay for as an investor, forget what you want to spend at Starbucks, where they're cranking prices by the second, it seems. Uh, but if you put a 30 multiple on it, which is a discount of where it has been over the last uh, couple of years, but uh, a major, uh, I would say, premium to where it's traded on a five-year basis, you know, you, you're, you're you're at $100 stock, no problem. If you think this should be trading more in line with uh, you know, 25 multiple, which is a longer term average, then this stock is capped right here. It's done very well against the S&P. It's outperformed the S&P by about uh, 11 or 12% over the last three months as they've kind of righted the ship here. This is an important hire. I think the investor day really needs to set a, a very clear tone. A lot more to come on fast. Here's what's coming up next. Car sales hitting some roadblocks. As supply chain issues tailgate the automakers. So which names are best positioned to get back on the road? The details ahead. Plus, speaking of travel, we're boarding the airline trade next. And our next guest says there's a major tailwind coming for the space. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Fast Money. A read on auto sales came out today. Let's uh, get to Phil LeBeau with the very latest numbers. Phil. Melissa, these were not good numbers, and nobody expected them to be good. Remember, if you don't have the supply, you can't do the sales, and that's what we're seeing with the automakers. We really only get the foreign automakers on a monthly basis. We'll get Ford tomorrow. But for the automakers who reported today, and we're talking about Toyota, Hyundai, and Honda, keep in mind, these are in comparison to last year. So the numbers are very lumpy. It was at the beginning of when we saw the chip prices hitting in. In some cases, for Toyota and Honda, uh, these were not easy comparisons. For Hyundai, a little bit easier comparison. In terms of what the market expects overall, you've got demand outpacing supply. That has not changed. That's why the rate of sales for the month of August is going to be coming in somewhere around 13.3 million. For point of reference, in a normal market, it should be about 16.5 to 17 million for this time of year. And then you've got the transaction price because there's such limited supply. Anything that's out there is going for a pretty penny. Close to a record high in terms of average transaction price, 46259 uh, That's according to J.D. Power. So as you take a look at the big three, keep in mind that they still have robust demand out there for their pickup trucks. I know we like to talk about EV development. Pickup trucks are still what's towing the money uh, for these guys in terms of the money that they're bringing in right now. And one other uh, note, uh, there is a, a report from Morgan Stanley today that Tesla in terms of its global market share in July amongst all EV automakers may have dipped a little bit. That has some people saying, well, are things slowing down for Tesla? Keep in mind, it tends to dip the month or, or two after or right before the end of the quarter. We'll see it probably get back up to where it was before uh, as you look into August and September. 
Melissa? When does financing become an issue, Phil, with rates going higher? Well, it's an issue to an extent. Look, it's an issue for anybody who's out there right now who is borrowing because the average new vehicle monthly payment has topped $700 for the first time, according to J.D. Power. It's about $716. You have to wonder at some point, does somebody say, I'm paying $750 a month for a new vehicle? Now, there's a segment of the population that certainly can afford that, but when that's the average... It's come so far, so fast. You have to wonder at some point, Melissa, where it really starts to meet resistance. Yeah. Phil, thanks. Phil LeBeau. Um, Guy, what do you think of the autos here? Well, look, at, I'll go right to AutoNation, which I know BK is familiar with, although right now, for some reason, he's in parts unknown. But I'll say this. Look at the 135 <laughs> level, the high we made in the fall, the level we just traded up to. People say it's cheap on valuation, which is actually probably a warning sign. And if things start to move that way, names like AutoNation are going to get lambasted, I think. And anecdotally, because mm. that's what I do, I got an email today from Enterprise. Like They knew my name. They said, Guy, in all caps, we are lowering our prices on our used car fleet. I have not seen that in quite some time. Just oh, throwing it out. Th- yes, interesting. So I'm throwing it out there. If you're along these stocks, specifically AutoNation, I think you take the money and run. So I actually think the opposite. We, were, we had an analyst a couple weeks, on, uh, weeks ago on the air, and we were talking about it. I think you just um, upgraded the stock here. And if you think of these supply, you know, demand things just stay in this whack. I mean, they're going to they're gonna benefit like from that demand for used cars, in my opinion. The other thing I'd say, Phil just mentioned that anecdotally, um, you know, the, the Tesla market share dip. Anecdotally, I've seen two Rivians on the street in the last mm. week, and mm. last night, I saw a Lucid on the street. And let me tell you, that Lucid Air, which is a sedan, and if you were in the market for a Tesla Plaid at around $140,000, $150,000, you know, guy, you, you got, no, you know, no, actually. No, that Lucid Air is a much hotter car. I'm just telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you. So, I think all of that competition that the bears have been talking about, some of us, um, I think it's here as far as Tesla. I think there are other options. All right. Uh, let's stick with transports here. Airline stocks running into turbulence ahead of the holiday weekend. JetBlue, American Airlines, Southwest, all lower today. Delta and United, slightly higher. The broader U.S. global jet CTF also under pressure. It's down nearly 12 percent from August highs. But our next guest believes the business travel ramp up this fall will help give airlines a boost. Jamie Baker is a senior airline analyst at J.P. Morgan. Jamie, great to have you with us. So business nice travel is going to be back, back to normal, you think? Well, we certainly uh, we certainly think there's more momentum to be had uh, on that, you know, all critical travel component. I mean, all along, we felt that the key to unlocking corporate demand is first getting your kids back into school, second, getting yourself back to the office and then third, being put back out on the road in the return to office momentum is very, very favorable. So, yes, we think there's going to be, you know, a, a measurable uptick in corporate demand, you know, kicking off in a couple of weeks time. Jamie, it's Tim. How about the cost inputs for the airlines? And and clearly, uh, we can talk about jet fuel. It seems like airlines are are not rewarded on the way down, but they're overly punished on the way up. I'm curious your thoughts on that. And obviously, again, around labor and wages and pilot availability uh, and some of those dynamics. Yeah. Well, you know, I think to everybody's surprise, certainly to my surprise earlier this summer, uh, you know, the airlines were able to keep, you know, ticket pricing in line with higher fuel costs. So it didn't really have any measurable impact. And we hope that that trend continues from here. You're absolutely right that the industry is really on the cusp of a labor cycle right now. We would have already, you know, cut new labor contracts with unions in the 2020, 2021 timeframe had COVID, you know, not not been the reality so that sort of postponed the day of 
contract reckoning. What we can tell you and tell investors, more importantly, is that the date of signing increases that are currently being contemplated and discussed between you know United and their aviators, American and their pilots, you know the date of signing increases are meaningfully less than what we've seen in the last two rounds of you know pilot renegotiation. Uh, you know, the most recent being sort of the 2015, 2016 timeframe. So, so we do think that those higher input costs will be manageable. Why are Delta and Alaska your favorites? Uh, best managements, uh, you know, for, for, you know, one part, uh, for one thing, these are the only two airlines that did not dilute owners uh, during the downturn. Um, now, on October 1st, the handcuffs come off. Airlines are going to be permitted to reinstate dividends and, and repurchase equity, you know, for the first time in several years. I wouldn't expect that to happen imminently, but I know that it is a priority for Delta and Alaska. I suspect they're going to want to get those new contracts in place. You know, there's no point in a antagonizing your, your workforce by, you know, issuing a dividend at the same time you're at the negotiating table. So, you know, deals first dividends, you know, second, but valuation, mm -hmm. overall structure, idiosyncratic uh, issues at Delta, you know, we do expect Delta in particular to be able to resume its sort of margin leadership position that it had pre-COVID. Jamie, great to see you. Thank you. Jamie Baker, JP Morgan. Uh, Tim, you've been an investor in this space. So what do you make of it here? I mean, the, the idea that back to work, back to normal, back to getting on the road, um, seems really attractive. At the same time, you have a looming potential recession, and that certainly plays in. But but I think the, the business travel in the front of the bus dynamic and mm -hmm. the transatlantic flights, or the, I should say the international travel, are really key moments of where we were not believing that the airlines, even though they were giving us uh, facts on where they were relative to the 2019 stack, I think the big issue for airlines is going to continue to be around efficiencies and, and so costs. So uh, we talk about this all the time. You know, Basically, uh, cost per available seat miles and where a lot of these airlines are actually well in excess of where they were in 2019 for some of the reasons that Jamie talked about. So uh, jury's still out. Airlines are some of the great trading stocks. These are at the bottom of the range. Uh, Delta clearly is the head of the class, and the balance sheet dynamics are really important. We talk about this. Uh, be careful on EV to EBITDA multiples, because a lot of the EVs for some of the airlines that raise money uh, are, are significantly higher based upon that debt load. Coming up, Bitcoin breakdown. The cryptocurrency dropping below 20K as crypto winter rages on. A resident Bitcoin baller, Brian Kelly, will break down what he sees coming next. Plus, we are looking skyward for some cloud options. Shares of Okta plummeting despite an earnings beat where the markets say it is heading next. Professor Ko has the action when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Cloud stocks falling back to earth. Okta crashing to its lowest price since 2019 despite posting better than expected earnings and raising estimates. The street worrying about the company's ability to integrate Auth0, an authentication software provider that it acquired last year. And even after today's massive slide, options traders are betting the worst is far from over. Mike Coe has the action. Mike. Yeah, so we saw Okta trade well over 18 times their average daily options volume. It was the 12th busiest single stock option today. And the busiest options within it were the weekly 55 strike puts. We saw nearly 15,000 of those trade for about 33 cents a contract. Buyers of those puts, which expire tomorrow, are betting that what we saw today could in fact continue, maybe adhering to Steve Grosso's three-day rule. 
The old three-day rule. Three-day rule. Well, listen, and Mike knows this. When you see a lot of that short-dated action, I mean, it could be somebody who's in the stock looking for short-term protection, trying to, like, kind of stop themselves below the market or so. But I'll just say this. We talk about multiple to sales in some of these kind of high-growth companies all the time. I mean, all of a sudden, you have a company that was trading north of 20 times sales. Now at five times, wow. if you still like the business and you just see a deceleration, you just mentioned, you know, kind of integration issues with an acquisition, fine, whatever. I'm sure this good management will get over it. I mean, these are probably getting close to levels, stocks like this, in my opinion. All right, Mike, thank you. Mike Co. for more Options Action, tune into the full show. That is tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up, we're all over the after hours move in Lululemon. Shares jumping after its latest report. We've got exclusive sound from the CEO. That is next. And we're counting down to a big Apple event in just about a week's time. So what makes this event so special? We will tell you when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert for you on Lululemon. Shares are higher by 9.5% after the athletic retailer uh, raised its guidance for the year. The company also handily beating estimates for the quarter, posting earnings per share of 220 versus expectations of 187 a share. Revenues coming in more than 5% above estimates at nearly $1.9 billion. Sarah Eisen joins us with more on the results. Sarah. Hi, Melissa. You do not see many other retailers right now posting 29% sales growth. CEO Calvin McDonald of Lululemon says he hasn't seen any changes or signs of weakness from the consumer. Lulu, you mentioned, also lifted guidance. So I asked McDonald what the current quarter is looking like right now. We are very confident and comfortable with the start of the quarter. Uh, and we have very exciting back half of innovation of product coming. Uh, and we're cycling over some opportunities from last year, where if you recall, last year it was September. It's hard to believe it was only a year ago. Uh, where we saw shutdowns in Vietnam, uh, disrupted a lot of our flow of inventory, in particular certain categories like uh, our outerwear. So we're excited to have that behind us. We're excited with our innovation pipeline and the momentum we carry into the quarter and into the back half. I dug in a little bit more on the supply chain because like everyone, Lulu was hit with these challenges, the factory closures, crazy shipping rates. But on that front, McDonald is sounding upbeat as well. Listen. Getting better. Uh, from from where we were last year. Uh, at the peak uh, uh, on ocean deliveries were over 95 days. Typically it's 45 days, we're in the 70 day range. So we are still leaning into air freight, which is putting some pressure on gross margin, but we're able to balance that a little bit more. Our vendors have uh, done a great job in catching up to orders, uh, which will help and improve our on time and as we manage our inventory going forward. So it's improving, but it's definitely not at the pre-pandemic levels. It was a question on supply chain and inventories. Finally, a big piece of the growth story here rests on international. McDonald said that was strong as well, especially in China, up 30 percent this quarter, which was an improvement from last quarter, even with some of the concerns around the COVID lockdowns. And he said he's very excited about the long-term opportunity there and is investing. But overall, Melissa, that's a story of the core business. Men's, women's, accessories jumping 80% thanks to the viral hit, the belt bag. And they're able to charge full price, which a lot of retailers aren't able to do in this environment with consumers starting to trade down. He's just not seeing it. Is a belt bag a fanny pack? It is. <laughs> I know okay. people are mocking me, but they call it a belt bag and it sold out during the quarter. And I think it was it was very well timed for the summer of travel because it, fanny packs, as you know, are very convenient with travel. But yeah, it was it was a it was a fashion statement yeah. and apparently lifted the accessories category 80 percent. 
Wow. Viva the fanny pack, a belt bag. <laughs> Sarah, thank you. Sarah Eisen. Coming back. Um, so higher income households are trading down to canned goods. They're trading away from deli meats. They're abandoning Campbell's soup. But they are buying belt bags. They're buying ABC pants. Guy. Yeah. Well, that's Amazing. that's Joe Kernan. I, I don't I don't need you to know what the ABCs thing. are. I do wear the underwear, as you know, the boxer briefs. Probably too much information for you, but it's I will tell you yeah, they're extraordinary boxer briefs. That being said, direct to consumer up 30 percent and an inventory build for a company like Lululemon is not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. So we see inventories up 86 percent year over year off a 30 percent sales growth. You say to yourself, they're doing something right here. The only knock on Lulu at these levels is valuation. If you can wrap your head around 33 times, the stock probably continues to grind higher from here. I'm going to wrap my head around Nike. You know, this thing almost got back to its June lows today um, and, you know, expected to grow. I think earnings maybe 20 some percent next year, 10 percent sales growth, trading about 22 times. I think Tim would tell you that's about as cheap as it's been in a long time. And if you like the trends at Lulu, you probably like the Nike, especially into, let's call it the World Cup in November and Cotter. Mm-hmm. You know, there's some callus out there. Yeah. Tim, I feel like you have a belt bag. <laughs> <laughs> not, not, well, a belt that's bag. a compliment, right? I appreciate that. Yeah. No, no. I, I take that as a compliment, Mel. You think I'm a, I'm a fashion plate. Uh, by the way, Dan just teased a, a final trade. Uh, I, look, I, these numbers in Lulu are, are extraordinary when you consider the environment and when you consider that uh, they are not marking down anytime soon. They made that clear. They're not going into promotion land. They don't need to. Uh, EBITDA margin of 21.5%, a two-tier uh, membership program that's, that's coming into play. And, and I, I, on valuation, with all these other companies out there that you have to evaluate in the context maybe of a different uh, market multiple, um, I, I see Lulu... Uh, it, you know, one standard deviation lower than their five-year average. In other words, they have come in a lot. Uh, this is a very attractive stock, and I think you're buying weakness, and this is probably that weakness. Uh, maybe you don't jump in buy it tomorrow morning. Uh, stock traded down almost 15% to the intraday low yesterday into this print or, or today. So um, you are buying it at a discount. Maybe you don't chase it tomorrow, but you need to be adding this one. All right, switching gears here. Check out Bitcoin falling below $20,000 at one point today as the crypto crush continues. The entire crypto space still dealing with major losses this year. BK, you had some thoughts on uh, the correlation with technology, which has recently been pretty high. Yeah, it's been very high, right? So Bitcoin correlation uh, with the NASDAQ is somewhere around 60%. Ethereum correlation with the NASDAQ is somewhere around 70% for the rolling uh, 30 days, last 30 days. So it's effectively acting, crypto in itself is acting like a 2X levered triple Q ETF. And I I think there's some nuanced here in that one, Bitcoin itself is not a tech stock. It is definitively an alternative currency. It is digital gold and you need it when your country destroys its currency like a lot of people are doing today or a lot of governments are doing today. Ethereum on the other hand, can be somewhat thought of as a tech stock um, because it is going to take disrupt a lot of what tech stocks are doing today. And to the extent that it takes daily active users away from places like Twitter and Facebook and Google and all of that, I do think there is something to be said for Ethereum being a tech stock. But in general, I don't think crypto really bottoms until it breaks that correlation, because otherwise, why do I need it except for a levered play on NASDAQ? 
Hey, Beeks, real quickly, um, Ethereum, we have this merge coming supposedly in mid-September here. Ethereum, since I think the spring is traded in this range, 2,000 down to 1,000. Now it's kind of the midway of that point after just trading at 2,000. Is there a trade here or is it fairly much a consensus thought that it should trade up into this event and therefore maybe it won't? Yeah, I think I think it's probably more a sell the news, right? I mean, which is, is maybe not that intuitive because in crypto you generally want to buy the news. But everybody has been buying Ethereum because they're going into this merge and now you're going to get a so-called yield. And just so you know, it's not really a yield. You're just getting your inflation rewards back. So it's it's kind of offsetting the inflation in the currency. It's not really a yield. So I think of anything, there's probably a higher potential for a sell the news event going into the merge. And, you know, you could also have a technical glitch. Not only could there be a technical glitch, but there's a lot of questions about what the apps are going to do if this if ethereum splits again so remember you could have a chain fork and you could have now not one two but three different ethereums and then what does your d app go on and what does it play on so i think there's more risk to the ethereum merge than people are giving giving credit for i was just talking about those risks um bk thanks for that coming up we're counting down to Obviously, he was not. Uh, we're counting down to next week's big Apple event. And this one will include some real FaceTime. We will explain when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Less than a week until Apple's first in-person product launch since the start of the pandemic. They're expected to announce four new iPhone models, software updates, and a rumored hardware subscription service. That could provide a big boost to recurring sales, giving users the option to pay a monthly fee for their devices and services like Apple TV and music, which, Dan, it would seem like a good timing if consumers are dealing with inflationary pressures. This uh, sort of narrows it down to a monthly payment that yeah. maybe they can afford better. Listen, it's genius. Okay, people hated it when Amazon talked about it. They talked about the costs associated with Amazon Prime. I mean, if you can take out that hardware expense, that ASP, that average selling price that actually scares some users away, I think they've had tremendous success with the iPhone upgrade program. So I think this will be very well received. And just back to the stock real quickly. Carter came on two weeks ago, said sell it, sell it all, that sort of thing. Went from 175 to 155. It reversed today, took the market up with it. Yeah. I had puts on i'm taking him off i have been on the way down here he could rally into that event next week uh, he came back yesterday and said do nothing now oh he did yeah that was the update all right well I'm up covered. next final trade <laughs> time for the final trade tim seymour nike i think they are the other best of breed discretionary retail out reporting next month i think the numbers are gonna be good brian kelly Oh, for me, it's uranium, U-R-A. It is the solution to the energy problem, and you can't go green without yellow. Okay. <laughs> Dan. Yeah, Zoom video. I'm starting to dollar cost average on the one side. Die. You know, Kate broke in with the Starbucks. It's Kate Rogers' birthday. So, Yay! Be, yeah, Kate. exactly. Happy on behalf birthday. of CNBC Fast Money, Woo. happy birthday. Kate, uh, DGX, that's okay. Quest Diagnostics. It's too cheap at current levels, Melissa. All right. Thank you for watching Fast. See you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. Meantime, don't go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, 
The ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.